From Washington, D.C., this is the Korean American Perspectives, a new podcast presented to you by the Council of Korean Americans. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives podcast, where we explore the triumphs and challenges of the Korean American experience and examine different sides of complex issues that shape our community. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this episode. Today, we're pleased to interview Jeannie Chang, a licensed marriage and family therapist and founder of Your Change Provider, a therapeutic practice centered on authentic self-care and wellness. She is passionate about serving individuals, couples, and families by promoting a culturally competent approach to family, community, and work life. I have a fascinating discussion with Jeannie as we begin the interview talking about her 33-year journey to find her final calling career calling in life. As a part of this conversation, we go deep on tough issues that many Korean American families are struggling with today. Depression, trauma, parent-teenager communication issues, and yes, even suicide. If you have teenagers in your house or will soon have teenage kids, this is an important episode for you. Jeannie shares many insights about understanding the power of depression. How do you identify if your child is suicidal and how do you speak to them about it? We also talk about how tragedy and death in our schools and our communities could have an impact on the teenage mind. Jeannie introduces the concept of secondary trauma or the hidden trauma that could have unseen negative impacts on our kids. Finally, she gives tips on how to better communicate with teenage boys and girls. And yes, they communicate very differently. This episode is packed with rich insights and life hacks to navigate the challenges of being a parent. But even if you are not a parent of teenagers, there are plenty of nuggets of wisdom about taking care of our own mental health. Actually, our podcast interview with Jeannie went a bit long, so we divided our discussion into two episodes. This show will cover the first half, and next week we will release the second half. We have a lot to cover, so let's go right into this interview. Welcome to the Korean American Perspectives. My name is Abraham Kim. I'm the executive director at the Council of Korean Americans and the host for today's show. We're so thrilled to have Jeannie Chang with us. Jeannie is a recent member of CKA, but also professionally, she's a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified clinical trauma professional. And she's been treating children, adolescent families on issues related to anxiety and depression, uh, but also on mindfulness, and hope to get into some of that today. And her background is rich. Uh, She's originally trained as a journalist, and then went to business school and did marketing, and then she went into uh, her clinical work today. Uh, And I hope to get into uh, a lot of this uh, interesting, rich, nuanced um, background of hers. So I want to welcome Jeannie. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I have a lot to share. Well, Jeannie, uh, let's start off from the beginning. Okay. Um, tell me about your childhood and how you came to the United States um, sure. and how your parents immigrated here. Yeah, so I am, yes, a second-generation Korean-American. My parents came shortly after they had me. So I was born in Seoul, 
Um, and I was probably, what, I think four or five months old. So I was a baby. They said it was actually a miserable trip because I was crying the whole time. But they came, they actually delayed their uh, immigration to the U.S. because of my birth. So I, as they like to say, you were a honeymoon baby, little TMI. Um, but so they delayed their arrival here and my dad... Um, started his residency as a neurologist. So we came in 1974. So pretty much, definitely I was born in Seoul, um, but I was almost nearly raised here. But I will say I was a, a not a U.S. citizen until I was in eighth grade. So I actually had a whole day of it. That was kind of fun, becoming a U.S. citizen, skipping a day in school to go to the U.S. Embassy in Philadelphia and getting my whole citizenship. I do remember that, and I talked about that at school. Well, great. And, but you went to Ohio originally, and, right. the, and yes. then you grew up, and we, then you moved to... Wilmington, Delaware, right outside of Philadelphia. Yeah. So I don't know how they ended up in Ohio. I've actually never asked my dad that. So I don't know. <laughs> so how was it growing up in Delaware? Were you the only Korean-American family in the area? Very good question. So we were not the only Korean-Americans, but we were one of very few. So a lot of the people I grew up with were Caucasian. Um, so I was that token Asian many times, right? In camps or after school activities, but I did grow up in the Korean American church. So that is probably where I got a lot of the cultural, you know, um, feeding of the soul, if that makes sense. But one of the things I, of course, the typical upbringing where you struggle being the only Asian (laughs) or the only Korean. Um, so yeah, Wilmington, Delaware was pretty much a very white, white, uh, area. So I did stand out. How would you say your parents have shaped your life? If you, as an adult, are you, do you find yourself becoming more like your parents? So to answer that, you know, when you're growing up, you, you're going to say, I'm going to do everything that my parents don't, um, I'm not going to do anything that my parents did, if that makes sense, right? I'm not going to do this to my kids. The funny thing is, yes, um, flash flash forward in my mid forties, raising teens and a college kid. Yeah. There are some things I've adopted from my parents. So here's what I say now. I'm able to say this because I'm middle-aged, but I do appreciate what my parents did to instill some of the really strong Korean values like um, working hard, right, or really um, doing your best. Now, there's a fine line between doing a success, being success-driven and achievement-driven and your emotions, right? So the emotional part is where probably what we'll tackle today that isn't being met for a lot of second-generation children. Um, But they did... I want to say now, if you had asked me this maybe 20 years ago, maybe not so much. I wouldn't have been as positive. I think this comes with age, um, maybe more understanding, wisdom um, from raising your own kids that I have come to appreciate. Plus, if I say that I don't appreciate the way my parents raised me, then I'm almost saying I'm not appreciating myself, right? I want to say that I'm happy with myself. And actually, my parents have a lot to do with that. So I do share a lot with um, other second generation families. Hey, listen, don't be so um, anti-Korean and your your parents because you're almost saying to yourself, I don't like myself, which some of them don't because they're trying to relate, they don't relate to the culture, but it's very important for molding your mental health and well-being to accept part of the, the culture that you may not like. And that's where I think I got to that point. But obviously I'm older, so I can say that. Um, and that comes over time. Uh, I'm interested in how... Um you grew up under your uh, within a traditional family, mm-hmm. and then you went to college, and you chose journalism uh, as your yes. career. <laughs> um, uh, how did you come about that decision? That's a great question because I, I have to say my father is a neurologist. Okay, so doctor, um, and you know the whole 
oh, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer thing. Um, my f- entire extended family, I'm proud to say this now, but growing up, yeah, I grew up in a family of physicians. So you can imagine the pressure I felt. But I will say, this is how my father shaped my life. Um, to his credit, I think he saw early on that I didn't really have a pension for medicine, you know, and um, I preferred speaking, public speaking, being in front of people. I did well in spelling bees, so I was really good at writing. So actually, when I said, when people asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? I remember saying this in third grade. I don't know how it came into my head, but I said, I want to be an anchor woman, and I want to be on television, and I want to be the number one anchor woman. And I did say, and I want to be you know, proud of my Korean. I remember saying this, and I remember, this is very critical that my dad said this. He goes, okay, good okay, then you be the number one, right? Because I said number one. So it's all about being the best. But um, he did actually encourage it. So uh, I did. I think from third grade on, I did everything school-wise, extracurricular activities. Um, Aside from the music, I kind of really went toward the broadcast journalism route, and I did major in that at NYU. So despite the family of doctors, right? But I was proud of that, and that's actually how I began my career. And um. I I think, again, credit to my dad for encouraging me instead of discouraging, right? So that's where he was a little bit more progressive, I think. Mm -hmm. So how did your Korean-American identity shape your your career in journalism? Your first job out was at the the AP? No, the first job was at WRAL. Okay. Yeah, um, here in the D.C. area. And so I was with them, and I did um, morning news. Now, first of all, what okay? How it shaped is first. I was one of the only Asian Americans. I want to say during the time I started, yes. Um, and so, but you know what it was? I think somewhere along the way, where my parents did something right, despite me disliking part of my culture a lot, was the fact that I kept saying I'm going to be the number one Asian American anchor. Connie Chung was a great example. So she was kind of my mentor and, and role model. But I wanted to beat her. But anyways, um, I, I think for me. When I was in D.C. covering mainly the Clinton campaign, I moved from WRL to the Associated Press. I think because the, me being Korean-American, I did stand out as well. And here's a funny fact. You look younger when you're Asian. I know we have that Asian youngness. Um, I would resent a lot that people thought I was a high school student or a college student because of the way I looked. I think even being that, even being young, looking young, which us Asians should appreciate, I resented that too when I was a journalist because a lot of people would talk down to me thinking, oh, you're a high school student. I go, no, I'm not. I'm a reporter here covering, you know, President Clinton's, um, you know, parade into town. But um, that not so much that shaping my journalism career. What really shaped it was actually um, being driven to bring the Asian Americans into media, which I didn't see a lot. Now you're seeing more, but even then there's, there's not enough. Right. So hopefully I answered your question. Yeah, no, (laughs) but you, you chose to go from journalism to marketing after that. Yes, I know. So that is probably, uh, so that interesting story is why I chose to leave the field of journalism was at the time. Um, and I think back then I didn't know that I was practicing a form of mindfulness, but I was unhappy when I left the workforce, meaning I was very happy when I was doing my job. In the Associated Press, it was crazy covering, you remember the whole Clinton scandal? Yeah, I covered that. Very exciting. But once I left to go back home, I felt a void. And I think it's because why? My life was so busy. When you're a journalist, you're there 24-7. They do pay you well. It's a very lucrative career, but that's because you're working all the time. So by the time I left 
the office, I, I'd be like, okay, who do I, I haven't talked to this person in a long time. So I felt lonely a lot. Thank goodness for my then boyfriend, who is now my husband. But when we made the decision to get married, I had to figure out, I looked at my life 10 years into the future since I'm a planner and I saw myself actually unhappy doing this, the work that I was doing as a journalist. I loved what I did, but I wanted more as a whole life, like a holistic picture of my life, not just work. Because when it just becomes about work, I'll tell you now, as I treat a lot of professionals, it's not enough, right? You're, you're, if you're unhappy leaving work, um, you want more. It's all about your relationships. And I had at that time, I was missing so much. I was only in my mid-20s. And I think I remember feeling much older because I was burned out. And then, um, and then losing some friendships because I didn't have time for people. So I made the choice. I left the field. The last thing I did actually before I left was I interviewed Snoop Dogg. <laughs> I was sure about that. Hey, I was about to go into entertainment um, television, but I interviewed him and then I decided, what's the typical Asian thing to do? Hmm. Okay. I'll go, I'll go to grad school because it's good to get a higher degree. And I decided to go to business school. I'll be honest, more because of prestige, nothing because I was passionate about it. So when I applied, actually, um, I went into the MBA program initially at Johns Hopkins because I was here and then I was miserable. Like the first class I took was accounting and fine, stuff like that, right? And I thought, I'm not going to use an MBA. I just did it for the prestige and the reputation because it's a, the Asian thing to do. But at the time, this is what saved me. Johns Hopkins was launching a new program, a new marketing program. So I, was, so I decided to transfer into that. So I um, was one of the first cohort to be part of that, spe- that new marketing program that is well underway now. But back in the 90s, it was brand new. And I focused on marketing. So business marketing, and that's, it's very different. It's about communication. Sure. It totally fit me. So that's how I ended up there. <laughs> but did you do marketing after that or? So yes, I ended up working yeah. in marketing for a little bit. Um, but I will share, cause I went through grad school again, that I actually cried my way through graduate school from business school because I overall didn't like, I knew that I shouldn't have been there. Marketing is still business right? So you're about promoting and products and all this stuff. And I still had to do so many, you know, economics courses, a lot of work in the business field. And I realized, wait, I don't belong in the business field. But again, I started, I wanted to finish it. Um, You know, I was halfway in when I realized, oh my gosh, am I going to use this degree? But I will tell you now that I am using this degree and I can tell you more later, but uh, yeah, so that's, uh, so yes, um, I finished the marketing degree and then I ended up moving to North Carolina, which is where I am now. But yes, I was a part-time marketing consultant for some time. So tell me that transition. <laughs> Yet that wasn't the end of your career journey. Then you moved to family counseling and becoming a, uh, a marriage therapist as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what was the trigger for that? Yeah. So that is a huge part of my story. Um, my mental well-being depended on me trying to find a purpose in life. So I was, we moved to North Carolina in my early thirties. And at the time I was like, do I want to do marketing for the rest of my life? Cause I knew that I eventually want to go back full time into the workforce. I had been raising three kids at the time, expecting a fourth. <laughs> so, um, busy family life. And I didn't let that stop me, but I thought I'm too young in my early thirties to be this unhappy with this field and just doing it because I got a degree in it. So I, I think it really came to me. It was like a calling in the middle of the night. I was like literally my fourth child was entering preschool. And it just came to me. You know what, Jeannie? Go into counseling because I would do it for fun on the side. I would help people, right? I, I was attending a church. I was always that go-to because I was raising multiple kids. How are you doing this? How can I get help on this? And and believe it or not, it relates to 
my love for journalism. So when I was a reporter, I loved hearing people's stories. I'd be out on the streets, um, you know, hearing about some great stories and I get to like report on them. But as a reporter, that's all you could do. You report on the facts and share the news. You can't give your opinions, right? You can't show your biases or anything like that. And as a therapist, you try to do the same, but as a therapist, I can at least provide some insight, feedback on what can change, what they can do better, right? When I hear their story. So I feel like I'm doing what I loved about journalism, hearing from people, learning about people, um, and getting be part of their story and their life, but I also get to help them. So that's, that's, and I feel like I call, I say it a calling cause it really came to me in the middle of the night. I'm like, and you know, it'd be different mental health. You have licensed clinical social workers, you have licensed professional counselors, psychologists, specifically what came to my mind was honestly marriage and family therapy, because I was at that point in my life, you know, married, raising kids, very embroiled in family. And I have, I believe what I have core family value. So that's just a natural progression. So I went back to grad school, much to my husband's chagrin. He's like, are you serious? I go, yeah, I'm going back to school. Um, and much to my parents' chagrin. So they went, what do you mean? They're like, what, what's therapy, right? And this is a well-educated family. My doctor, my father's a doctor and still went, I don't understand. What, what's that field? I go, you're kidding, right? This is mental health. You know, you are a doctor. You treat people who, you know, who have brain injuries or whatever, but then, you know, it's all emotional and spiritual and all the things with their healing. He said, yes, I understand that, but what are you going to do? He goes, I don't understand how you can have a field in this. And I will say now, what is that? 15 years later without dating myself, they, my dad, father has come to understand what it is mainly because the medical field is also moving in that direction, but also He's, I've spoken to him over the years and do you know, and he loved when I shared this psychotherapy, the field I'm in originated from neurology, which is the field my father's in. Mm. And he was like, you know what? That makes sense. Cause it's all part of the brain, our mental well being. So anyways, yes, I went to grad school and here I am today. And I do feel like this is the work I should be doing mm. and specifically helping Asian American families. Right. So so it took you more than 30 years to finally reach... It did take me 33 years, yeah. Wow. <laughs> but that's okay. And I was so to a lot of youth and young professionals, I do say sometimes it, it you may not... You think you're meant for a field and life changes you, right? Mm-hmm. So be mindful of that. I'm like, you, to, to be intentional in your life of accepting things that come your way because they may be meant to be. So I'm glad I'm here today talking to you about this, right? <laughs> so how has... Um, being in counseling shaped your own family life and your own experience, especially raising your own kids? Yes. That's a great question. Um, I will say having my own family makes me a better therapist and vice versa. So I'm raising four kids, um, married, I would say 22 years come April and four kids ages 19 to 13. So 19, 17, 15, 13. Yeah. Every two years. Yes. Yes. We're crazy. No. Um, so Raising four kids, teenagers especially, very difficult. So I'm not going to deny that parenting is easy. I mean, even my own parent, my, my own kids, when I'm treating teenagers in the therapy room, it's very different than talking to your own kids. But how it shaped me or influenced me, I will say um, I'm much more tolerant of uh, the bigger picture. Meaning I, I and this is what I tell parents, pick, pick the right battles. Because um, growing up, I remember fighting a lot with my mom about certain things. Now I would say I look at the overall picture of are they happy, doing well? And I know that sounds cheesy, but the truth is you want happy. 
families, right? And you want happier kids. You're seeing less of that because there's so much more stress. So how it shaped me is I, I am able to have a broader perspective of what matters. Um, honestly, even Harvard did a study on this, the key to happiness. You know, they thought, oh, it's achievements or, you know, finances. What do you think it is? No, it's not, right? It's the quality of your relationships, and Harvard is still doing this study. So going back to that, when I quote that, I'm saying in the end, I want to look for quality, um, a quality family. And yes, we all have our problems and we all have our struggles. People think, oh, it's you're perfect. Um, heck no, <laughs> right? But I also think I'm a better parent because I'm seeing greater issues out there. You, you get more appreciative when you're treating kids that are attempted suicide or, or cutting themselves and you say, okay, my kids aren't doing that. So you, there's a lot of gratitude involved too. Um, and patience. I will say because I'm a therapist, I'm more patient than I was 10 years ago. Um, because again, it's about having the bigger picture in mind, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of the bigger picture, how, mm -hmm. I mean, what do you mean by that? I mean, I guess for, would there be different bigger pictures for different families? I mean, the word happiness is, is such an ambiguous term as well. And Sometimes, quite frankly, raising teenage kids, they'd be happy eating Dorito chips on, on the couch watching Netflix all day. And, and in my, as a parent, I, sure, in their definition, that's happiness for me. That's not happy. Yes, I agree so, with you. Yes, definitely. So, so um, I think that I would, I'll, I'll clarify, the broader picture I think is, should be the same, meaning um, are your kids doing well in what they're supposed to do, but be reasonable with your, I guess, expectations. And for me to say this, because this is the joke in our family and the fact that my sister calls me Tiger Mom 2.0, um, here's the thing. Now I somewhat embrace that title, not because I want to be the typical Tiger Mom where it's all about success and no, like all work and no play. Not at all. But I'm talking about this because the broader picture is who I am today is a, a second generation Korean American molded by my parents' upbringing and the way they raised me. And I say Tiger Mom 2.0 because I also like some of the aspects of our culture where we push our kids, right? It's all in a balance. And that's actually another aspect of mindfulness. It's not about, um, it's about moderation. So sometimes Netflix, I mean, there are times I want to throw my kid's phone out the window. So trust me, I'm like, I, I also Netflix. So I'm like, all right, listen. So actually one time my son said, this is what hit me. When he goes, Mom, can I just have a break? Sometimes I just watch Netflix for a break. I think he was watching Friends or something that I liked watching. I went, you're watching Friends? Okay, you're old enough. You're 17. But when he said that to me, I go, you're right. You know what? I recall feeling stressed out a lot in my own childhood. Um, not because I didn't have loving parents, but everything was about doing and being the best. And I didn't get to go to birthday parties or have fun where my, well, my kid said, I just need a break. And that's what I'm doing. When I said, what are you doing right now? You should be doing homework. He goes, no, I'm actually done. I have to study, but I want a break. So I'm talking about this because I think it's the broader picture is the balance that I want to give my kids of also um, a happy childhood. Happy is the only thing I can think of. But don't forget, as parents, we can call the shots in what, what we value to be happiness. Yes, I don't want him to be eating Doritos. But I also want to know that he also works hard. Well, Doritos, some Doritos are okay. He works hard, but to understand that everything's a balance, right? Um, not all work and no play, but I think work and more play. Does that make sense? Yes, <laughs> yes, 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 it does. In fact, let's, let's, I mean, going more broadly into the work that you're doing today, and 
uh, and you're working with a lot of Asian American families and Korean mm-hmm. American families too. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'm curious uh, today, how are Korean American families in your work addressing mental health, um, or are they at all addressing yeah. these issues? So, and honestly speaking, in my practice, 60% are Asian Americans, um, and the other 40% are other ethnicities. But of that 60%, one or two are Korean Americans. Okay. Um, now, when I when actually in my clinical practice, but now I've done workshops for Korean churches and stuff like that. So, so that's different. So I feel like I'm still treating them, but I will say Korean Americans, and maybe, and I can be blunt about this because I am a Korean American. I feel like they're the toughest to break through. Maybe because I want to work so hard in breaking through them because I am a Korean American and I want so much to help my own race and my community. But um, generally speaking, I don't see them as much. Um, but I think it's growing. More and more people are talking about it. But generally speaking, the culture is, I would say Chinese Americans are the most, um, have been the most open in coming to therapy. And I'm even doing a parenting course for a Chinese school. I hope that someday it translates to a Korean school, right? I'm always trying to help my community. So what, what is, what are the cultural hurdles or what are the value systems that are preventing, you think, Korean Americans to seek out mental health? You know, that is a really good question. I do my own analysis and I think about myself, you know, um, I think it's still, it's, I want to say we're progressive in many ways in our fields. Okay. We're very, um, successful. A lot of, um, Korean Americans I find, um, are maybe more in the uh, white color is probably not the right word, but just they're, they're very doing well in their fields. But here's the thing. They choose to stay busy in those fields so they won't be educated or mindful of seeing the other, the broader picture of what's going on in their families. So I will say they're a little more narrow-minded. I hate saying that word, but again, this is my own experience. And I can say this because I'm also Korean American, but I find that they're the, uh, they don't like to um, sit down for a moment and think about other things that also make them successful like families, right? And there, I will say, I see some dysfunction when that happens, when things are hidden. You know, the whole saving face concept, mm-hmm. very Asian. Um, like I what, think what kind of dysfunction? So it trickles. Anxiety is contagious. It's almost like a disease, a virus. So a classic example of what I mean by that, because sometimes people need a picture, is when you're home, let's just say, Abe, you come home and you're already home and you're washing dishes. And then you hear, you, you hear your kids walk through the door and they slam the door and throw their books down. They're like, <sighs> like a big sigh. You're like, and without even looking at them, you already know, oh, something's wrong, right? That's what I mean by anxiety being contagious. The, the, the um, anxious mood or stress going, oh, what's wrong with my kids? It already translated to you just by hearing the way they came in. So that said, in a Korean family, the dysfunction happens when one person... All you need is one person to be experiencing something, um, anxiety, depression, whatever it is, not just mental health, something stressful, and it will tr- translate to the family, trickle throughout. But what happens is they're the, they don't share it. It's the whole saving face concept that happens a lot in Asian American families, the most from what I find in Korean Americans. Oh, okay, this is not good. We'll, we keep it to ourselves. Um, our kid is doing this. He's, um, you know, he got in trouble. We won't tell anybody, not even our parents. The classic example is I didn't know my mom, my own mother, um, has knee issues, and I didn't know she she had surgery. 
they don't tell you this stuff. That's the example of, that's not um, kind of hiding a mental health problem per se, but the stress that she might've gone through, it kind of slipped. I'm like, did you just say you had surgery? She's like, oh yeah, I'm good now. But what I'm saying is even hiding that from your own daughter. Now she's not, we're not local. We don't live in the same area, but still I was frustrated. What's wrong with sharing some of that burden? And then, um, and now it makes sense why my mom was stressed out and I felt it and I didn't want to talk to her during that time. Mm. Does that make sense? So that's what I mean by dysfunction. Mm. It can translate, triculate to the kids. Then the kids go to school stressed out. And then you have this whole, and dysfunction, you can still function well, but eventually it, it leads to chronic stress and then something chronic happens and something blows up. And that's usually when they come see me. And that's when I don't want to see you. Cause I'm like, you could have prevented this, right? Sharing this, getting help sooner. Um, but yes, that's just been my data with Korean American families. And, and maybe people refute that, but that's what I'm finding. Do you find uh, maybe there's some generational differences? Like, for example, first-generation families uh, dealing with these issues differently from, say, second-generation families. I'm just wondering oh, definitely. if they're... You mean... Um, um, oh, Korean Americans. Yeah, on mental health and how, they are, how they're dealing with it. Of course. So second-generation, um, they're better, right? They're... Um, more open um, and more vulnerable about things that that are going on. But still, there is a wall. (laughs) And I feel it even when I talk to other families. Why? Because of my field. Already they see me and they don't see me as Jeannie Chang, friend, or they see me as Jeannie Chang, oh, therapist, she might say something. And I I trust you. I I mean, please believe me, I do not analyze. I just want to like hang out. But all of a sudden they're like, yeah, so this is what happened. Okay, but no, we're okay. And I'm like thinking, okay, calm down. <laughs> I'm sure you're okay. But what I mean by that is even amongst the second generation, there, there's still a saving face concept. That's the best word I can think of. But it's worse in the first generation. But I will tell you, here's the first generation credit. The resilience that they endure to be immigrants, I feel like their resilience uh, is an example that I wish we could follow. Not hiding things, not, you know, not being so success driven, they can't see beyond that, but just showing a little bit of the resilience and strength that I don't see so much in the young and the youth today. Um, and that's a whole another topic, but, but yeah, I just, hopefully I answered that question, but, yeah. um, uh, <clears throat> you know, just kind of continuing along this conversation about second generation, uh, Korean American parents. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what's some of the biggest challenges you, uh, you see as parents in among the second generation community? Okay. Um, and I want to say it's probably very similar to other race and ethnicities, right? But it's with parents, especially of teenagers, okay? We are dealing with a lot now in this day and age, and um, stress is just on the rise, and, and anxiety is on the rise, and depression is on the rise, and, on the rise, and data shows that. And I wish I could say, and I actually laugh about it. It's on the rise, but yet we have so many more resources than ever right? We have more clinicians today. I think people more going into the field, Asian Americans, right? Going into the field, um, more things available, even technology available to help. Technology can also have its own vices, but generally speaking, the second generation parent, my biggest job is education or informing them of, um, what mental health is. And that sounds so 101, but even people my age in their 40s see it as such a distant thing, like, or they're scared of it. A lot of it is because it's fear driven, going, 
if I say that, you know, I'm going to see Jeannie or there's, I want to talk about mental health, there is something wrong. And I normalize it as best I can. Do you know that anxiety, uh, depressed mood, not depression per se, but being depressed or feeling depressed, these are normal emotions. You should experience them at one point or another, right? Because we're human beings. So, and I also say anxiety is such a normal part of life. You actually need stress in you in your life to do well in school. Like, right? Why, why are we stressed? Because we want to be good professionals. Why are we stressed? Because I want to be a good student in school. So I say, hey, so that's positive stress. So that's kind of what I do in my sessions to make people understand that mental health is exactly just those words, your mental mind and your health. It does not mean you will be diagnosed with a mental illness like bipolar or, you know, on that end or schizophrenia, but that's still the image of today. And that does come with stigma and not just Asian American mental health stigma, stigma of generally across the board uh, mental health, right? It is definitely moving in the right direction for sure. But so much education, which I'm constantly doing, people think I'm giving all these skills and, and treating and listening. A lot of my job is education, giving you the knowledge because knowledge is powerful to understand really what mental health is. And mental health is when you lose a job, and you're stressed out because you don't have enough finances to help your family. That is part of mental health. Does that make sense? Yes. And people actually think it's not like that. They're thinking I'm going to diagnose them with some disorder, right? Well, I would, <laughs> I would think in some ways uh, people, it's because it is your mind. Sometimes you don't know your your mental health is slipping, right? And so in many ways it's, it's insidious, right? And mm-hmm. like things like depression you don't go from like happy one day and then depressed the you know the next hour, uh, but in fact maybe over a long period of time you're kind of sliding into um, uh, unhealthy behavior in terms of your mental health and so mm, you describe it really well. So yeah. um, uh, and unless someone who knows you really well um, points it out, you you find yourself not knowing that you're slipping into that right and right. so so uh, I imagine. Um, I mean that's that's probably one of the difficult aspects of just admitting your you've your mental health is deteriorating. Yeah, so. depression is actually very difficult. I will say depression is very hard to treat, um, but it's very common. It's probably the most common thing I see. But it's very difficult on the the family too because they think why can't she just be happy? Yeah. What well, and 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 there's don't forget there's a lot going on with the brain, right? Um, your brain is wired uh, in a certain way when it's going through that depression. And there's clinical depression, which is more of a chronic level or depression because of something you're experiencing, right? And I guess, I don't know how much time we have, but just briefly, when I was treating a, a woman who was around my age, actually very recently, about two years ago, I diagnosed her with the clinical depressive uh, disorder, which is not clinical, sorry, just the correct depression diagnosis of MDD, major depressive disorder. It just means you're depressed. She was experiencing a lot of things going on in her life, but she had never experienced depression before, a successful businesswoman. And then it hit me. I went, wait a second, because during that time, I was going through through some turmoil with my corporate position um, of a job that I really, I would say I wasn't, it was toxic for me. And I decided, you know what? I actually think I'm suffering from it too. And depression is not like you're going to go around looking morose and sad. And it can look like that, but it also can look, Um, It can result in irritability, frustration, complaining all the time, not doing the activities like you used to do, right? Not able to, you're kind of not able to focus. It's, it it can look like that. And people just think depressed looks like you're just um, sad. Sad is a huge part of it. 
but there's another flip side. And so I had the other side where I was irritable all the time and, and I just, it, I was treating someone else. I went ding, 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 Jeannie. I need to look at myself. So I did take some time off to figure things out. And that's because of the job situation I was in. But I'm bringing that up because it's very much relatable to all of us, you know? And I do, like I said, I know this because I'm clinically trained to identify it, but I want other people to know it do, do. So that's what I mean by informing and educating a lot. So if one does find some, themselves in depression, I mean, what, what, are, what are some steps that one can take to yeah. get out of it? Is it... Or, or can you get out of it by yourself? I mean, That's a good, you know, and I, I have met some people who have approached me after some talks that I've done that they have gotten out of it by themselves. And I will say, and I'm probably one of those examples, but I, like I said, I'm clinically trained. So I kind of identified it and went, oh my gosh, Jeannie, let's, let's take a step back here. But I will say, you can, you can treat yourself and you can identify it as long as you're proactive to making sure on, st on steps that you're doing every day to combat that depression. And I will say still, you may need professional help later on because guess what? The pattern can repeat itself, right? A lot of people want to, here's a classic example. I feel good now, Jeannie. So I think you can discharge me. I'm feeling great. And I'll be like, you know what? I believe that you've been doing well. You've been feeling good. You've been doing all these things again. You're back into doing this stuff, blah, 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 blah. But I say, please keep up the things we've discussed. And granted, when they don't, I will say they come back to see me like a year later. You know, it's not necessarily me not doing my job, me just saying, hey, have you been, remember these things that we worked on? Yeah, no. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I will say eventually it can creep up again on you and, um, and patterns can come up if it's not, I guess, proactively treated correctly the first time. If it is what we're talking about is depression. Don't forget there's also situational depressed mood because of hard situations. That's not, that's not necessarily depression. And you can go through that and that could be stress. So you have to experience symptoms for a prolonged amount of time. Actually, it only takes two weeks to be officially diagnosed, but I'm talking extreme levels of dysfunction. Like I can't do my job. Mm -hmm. I can't function. I can't sleep. Um, and you know, uh, this is, I, I had to bring the statistic up, but suicide is on the rise. So more needs to be done on addressing it. More professional help needed for people dealing with depression. Yeah. It's an important topic, um, that, um, that we're all, it's impacting all, all parts of our community. I, in fact, I know uh, some families that have been recently affected by uh, suicide and, and as parents, um, uh, especially the, um, you hear a lot about teenage suicide as well. And I, I'm wondering, how have you been approaching this with parents in, in your work uh, on the issue of suicide? Mm -hmm. um, so here's the thing with suicide. Uh, it, it can't, the reason why it's so shocking, because first of all, it's someone taking their own life. So that's shocking in itself. Um, boys will, men, boys will do a little bit more, uh, I would say not, I would say graphic. That's the word I could say. They're a little bit more dramatic. They'll, you know, not to be so deep here, but just, they'll shoot themselves, right? Um, women might do it a little bit more uh, ambiguous while they're overdose on pills and stuff like that. That's just what data shows, and that's the experience I've seen. Here's what I say about suicide. I got into trauma, actually, because when I did my clinical internship, I saw a lot of different racial and ethnic backgrounds treating trauma differently, and especially in our Asian-American culture, um, do you know that they feel like they can own suicide's their only option because they can't share and it's very lonely. So a lot of what I address in families is when you're feeling lonely, yes, you, you may feel so in despair that you don't feel like anybody can relate. And this is your only option. That's why suicide's on the rise in Korea, you know? Um, 
But suicide, people who can think clearly on how they will take their life is one of the questions I ask. So I actually say specifically, do you have a plan on, on how you would, you know, kill yourself? If I get the answer of yes, so this is what I would do. I'm like, all right, ding, 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 alarming, right? But suicidal ideation, which is more common, which is the thought, contemplating, um, my life is terrible. I just, I might as well just not be here. I want to die. I want to kill myself. So those are suicidal ideation. That's more common. Um, but what happens is suicide does not necessarily happen when you're, you've hit rock bottom. I try to make that clear. People think it's when you're at the very lowest of low in your life. It is not. You actually have, you have no sense of um, life at that point that you don't even have energy to necessarily do that. What happens is when you come out of that, um, maybe right after out of that, your mind becomes a little clearer going, well, that time was terrible. I never want to go back to that time. I kind of got out of that. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go grab a gun. Does that make sense? So it actually happens when people least expect it because they just saw that person. They're like, I just saw he was happy. He had just gotten out of rehab and doing well. That's usually when it happens. So it's, it's a scary thing for me to share, um, but it's th- something to identify. When people go, Jeannie, he's hit rock bottom. My, you know, my son's at rock bottom. I'm like, okay. But in my head, I'm going, let's watch what happens after, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that's kind so, of a dark topic uh, there. Yeah, no, it's an important topic. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm wondering, as parents, um, how can we identify mental health issues, especially depression or suicidal uh, thoughts in our kids? Yeah. And... And here's the bottom line. You don't have to ask these tough questions like, are you thinking of killing yourself? I mean, I mean, that's like a rough question to ask your kids. I tell parents, you don't need to go there. You don't need to say, are you depressed? Are you anxious? No, actually what it is, connect with your kids. Okay, so I actually say this to parents. Your, your child, are, your, they're technically students, right? If they're under, you know, if they're college kids and under. Be a student of your student is what I say. So Learn from what your kids are doing to connect with them so naturally they, they'll feel connected to you and not lonely and things will come up easily. So what I'm trying to say is be very proactive so you don't have to get to that point of, let's talk about suicide. No, I actually want to say connect with your kids on every level. Here's an example. Um, video games are very popular. Okay. I don't necessarily like them either, but being a mother to boys, I have to understand them. <laughs> Fortnite, when it was at the height, um, I think it's kind of now gone away from that. Every kid was playing that, a lot of boys. And I had parents saying, I am so frustrated. He's playing this, he's playing this. And this is an example of what I said to the parent. I'm like, okay, so have you ever, do you even know what Fortnite is? They're like, not really, I don't care. I'm like, well, how about this? If you want to get your kid to do what he's supposed to do, like study for SATs or you know, do his chores and he's not doing it, and it's like a, a fight every day, how are you connecting with him for him to even listen to you? Mm-hmm. And, and then the parents are like, what? I go, why don't you do this? I have tried this and it works. Sit next to them for like 10 minutes. Be like, okay, so what's going on here? You're shooting this person, Fortnite. This person's doing this dance, this funny dance, whatever. I guarantee they'll look at you going, okay, mom, like, why are you here? Hmm. But in that five or 10 minutes, you're connecting on their level of, as they're explaining to you, annoyed because you're bothering them with the game. Mom, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to try to get this and then go on the next level. Oh, that's interesting. Uh Uh-huh. Then you leave. Believe it or not, that connection is very simple, but it's done. And then you'll say, hey, by the way, um, remember you're supposed to do the dishes, you know, because I'm going to be going out to this work event. Remember to do the dishes. And at that moment, you might be like, you might hear, oh, so annoying. Okay, gotcha. But 
that what happens is the kid felt somewhat connected to the mom and a little bit of like understanding happens where he goes, well, yeah, my mom just did this. I'm not saying he's thinking all this. I'm saying there's a connection there. So he's more apt to do, you know, what you asked him to do. That's a little trick, right? And I will say it works and it's grueling for the parent <laughs> to sit there. But hey, if you, if you start talking to your son, hey, tell me a little bit more about, um, yeah, that, that whole, that show you did or that, that project, tell me about it. And you actually sit and listen Right after you have that conversation, go in for the kill and say, hey, by the way, I need you to study for SATs for an hour. But it works because they connected with you. So what I'm trying to say is you don't have to ask the tough questions. You just need to connect with your kids. And then you'll be able to see when they're, when they're struggling, meaning even sitting down when they start getting stressed with their own siblings and calling them stupid, I'll just be like, what's going on? He's like, well, he's stupid. I go, well, did he just, did he stress you out because he messed you up studying? Yeah, it's because I need mm. to study. You know, things like that. You're connecting with your kids, and that will help them uh, be able to express more with you mm. what they're struggling with. And it's the same thing with daughters as well? Yes, yes. Oh, daughters? <laughs> daughters are um, a whole nother story. No. Daughters are much easier in the sense they're pretty verbal. I mean, they'll, they'll share things with you, right? But I need you not to, uh, not, not just you, Abe, sorry, just in general. Problem solve, sometimes girls don't want that. Women want to be heard, right? And I'm not saying you sit there validating everything. Okay, yeah, that friend of yours, she sounds awful. No, I'm not trying to endorse that kind of talk. More like, wow, so what did she do again? Really? She said that to you? Yeah. I can't believe someone would say, you're so stupid. Repeat what they're saying, even if you're not giving any advice, okay? You're connecting with them. And that's actually a whole nother method. It's called the ORS method, where you're actually asking open questions, you know, giving them affirmations. You're actually reflecting what they're saying, and then you're summarizing what they're saying. A lot of parents will miss the boat. Mm. I, uh, I have family sessions, and I get so excited when I see a kid go, Mom, especially Asian Americans, I told you many times why I didn't want to do that class. I wanted to do this class because I really love graphic design. The mom's like, no, you didn't tell me you like graphic design. You just said you didn't want to do like advanced math. He's like, yes, I did tell you. Remember? And she and they're missing the boat. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by the connection being very important. Mm -hmm. So the kid feels less stressed, right? Um, so girls, yeah, girls are, uh, I would say they're easier to deal with. But again, summarize what they're saying. You're, you know, when they're like in their dramatic mode, be like, wait, so what you're saying is that mom did this and then, and then this happened and then you got mad and that's why this happened. Yeah, that's what I told you. You're like, okay, that's all you need. And guess what happens? More conversation will build from that. Okay, so that's a little trick there. <laughs> mm. and, and dads would do the same. That's well. what I'm saying. I'm talking yeah. to you. Yes, yes, that's what dads do. Yes. It's very important, actually, for dads to do that, especially with their daughters. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I want to come back a little bit to this question of suicide. I think there's a lot of interesting aspects of this. And um, uh, we had a previous conversation about um about the impact of, for example, when you hear about a suicide happened in the school, mm -hmm. and maybe it was a friend or a distant, you know, maybe a, a student from another grade completely, but that still has impact on yes, your kids and the kids in the school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Explain that. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so that would be like secondary trauma. Um, trauma, it's very interesting. People think you have to experience it, like yourself, like live it to actually feel trauma or be traumatized. Not at all. I mean, secondary trauma is just as powerful when a kid hears about it, even if they don't even know the kid, they will be like, wait, he's my age. Kids can find ways to relate, right? That's what's so important about peer support. They will feel, and especially if they know the kid, child who 
kill themselves or something happened to them, oh, it can be a huge deal. And that's why schools, I will credit them, they're getting better at sending in crisis counselors to address it immediately. But secondary trauma is living the trauma like you lived it yourself, like you actually experienced it, but you actually didn't. Do you know that you can even be traumatized when someone telling you a story? So that is why I tell parents, hey, watch what your kids are watching too, even on Netflix. So the 13 Reasons Why was a big deal. So I had to make sure I watched it because a lot of my teen clients were coming in, including my kids watching it. So I'd want to make sure that I had a sense. And I just said, okay, you know, technically it's hitting the right spots, but I would also talk to them about it being like, hey, did that did that kind of stress you out? Or how'd you feel when you saw the very end scene, right? When she slit her wrist and there was like pool of blood, right? They were like, yeah, um, that bothered me for a while. But as, they're, as long as they're openly talking about it, that helps with the secondary trauma. But I watch a lot for secondary trauma. It's like a hidden trauma. Hmm. Kid will tell you a story and you're realizing, wait a second, they're actually very traumatized by something that happened to somebody else and they heard about it because they're relating it to their own mom, like their own mom's death. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I do talk about that a lot. Uh, hopefully I answer your question. I'm trying to figure out, Oh, it's suicide. Here's another secondary trauma. It's nothing related to us, but you know, the recent K-pop deaths, a lot of college students have actually said it's, it's, um, hitting them and they don't even, and some of these are Chinese American, Taiwanese American, not necessarily Korean, but they all read up on K-pop and they heard about it and it really triggered them. So my question is, um, I, my question is not like, why is it triggering you? I'm like, you know, I'm understanding that they're being traumatized. They might relate. They're relating actually because what uh, Kuata or Sully, the things that they shared with depression and, and being bullied, perhaps they also experience that or they see that happening. So that's why even a suicide of a celebrity hits close to home, right? So in terms of... Um but is that just for suicide or is that also perhaps a death of another friend that was maybe in a car accident, yes. for example? Mm -hmm. Everything. You're right. It, okay. It's not just suicide. You're right. It's any kind of traumatic event that um, a kid internalizes and can almost feel traumatized even if they weren't in that actual event themselves. It, here's an example because everything's relatable, right? Um, you hear about... I think I heard about recent, when you hear about the volcanoes, um, there was a volcano erupted in New Zealand. Ooh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I think some Americans died in that or were badly injured. It was to, to me, I thought, oh, that's tragic. That's kind of scary. But my niece and nephew just came from New Zealand and their in-laws lived there. So they were traumatized going, wait a second, we were just there. How are the in-laws, even though they were nowhere near that part of the country, but they, I could tell their trauma a little bit of like hearing about a big thing, people getting burned unexpected on a tour visit, and they related somehow. Mm. Well, yeah, because they have family there. So um, it could be anything that's relatable, right? And anything and everything is relatable if you think so, about it. So the impact would be um, at the least they would feel troubled or perhaps it might trigger some depression. Mm -hmm. But in Probably the worst... more anxiety. Anxiety. Right? And stress. And stress, but... In the worst case, in the case of maybe some of these, um, like Guhara and Su you know, Sully or maybe a friend committing suicide, they may start to ideate suicide, and then that may lead to other, even worse situations of carrying it out as a, a copycat or something like that. That's very interesting you bring yeah. that up, because I know a lot of parents get scared about that, yeah. right? The copycat issue. I will say, in my experience, and I'm sensitive about saying this, um, I'm not saying don't be too concerned with that as long as you're, you know, as you're, you're staying in tune with your family and connecting, but that 
a, a lot of people are not necessarily copycat. So that's what, yeah, Guada, I think the copycat kind of happened there, I want to say. Mm-hmm. I feel like that, right? That's the word. Um, I don't think that's so much more in common now. I think that people are talking about suicide as like a the copycat issue. Well, she is talking about it, so I'm going to talk about it. But actually following through with the act, I wouldn't necessarily say there's a copycat risk, if that makes sense. As every case is unique, every situation is unique, and everyone's, um, sometimes people want to talk about suicide because it's a thing to talk about. Does that make sense? In a mm-hmm. school, well, she's talking about it. All right, I'll join this conversation. But I caution parents from getting too stressed out, saying, you know, this is what they're talking about. What if my daughter gets ideas in her head that this is that she can do this? And I go, well, the what if is a classic example of an anxiety taking over, fear taking over, and we can't live like that, right? So we have to kind of practice mindfulness in the moment of what's going on with your daughter. Does she seem happy? And the answer might be, yes, yeah, she is. I just guess I guess I was just stressed out about her talking about suicide and what if she does it? I go, well, if she's not showing any signs of being depressed or anxious and just talking about it because it is a topic, I believe that's okay, you know? So what ifs is another scenario that I try to caution parents from because you can't control the future and you go that way, you will get lost in that, right? <laughs> in that thought. It's human nature, but again, I kind of bring them back. Hey, what's going on now? What's going on at the current moment? So in terms, just in terms of... Um the best thing a parent could do is just to talk with their kids and connect and talk through. And talking is difficult. So here we go with the Asian culture. It is not easy, even for me, right? I grew up with non-talkative parents um, who, you know, they talked at me, not talked with me. Um, so I think with parents, it takes it's a practice to lecture. I always tell you, say lecture less, you know? Try to engage in conversation by asking these open-ended questions. When I say open-ended, not the answer should not be yes or no. It should be things like, uh, what made your day so bad? Then they have to explain, well, it was really bad because of this. Um, well, how, how are things going in your math class after that math exam that you struggled with? Things like that. Get them to explain more and connecting. I mean, that's the best word I can think of for them to be able to actually show you openly their struggles with whatever that is, right? And growing up, I could not do that. I will share. It was very difficult. Um, it is very difficult for second generation uh, parents or families or, ki- or adults now to say, you know what, I could never tell my parents this. And I go, you're right, that's part of the culture we grew up in, but we can change that. You know, we've gotten, um, we're more Americanized. We can bring that communicativeness back to our families. So that's usually my response to that, that they, they didn't get to share that much. Yeah, no, I, I feel like we can talk for another hour or so yeah, just about this topic. Uh, but I want to bring this portion of our podcast to a close, uh, and, uh, and in our second podcast, our next podcast, we'll be talking with a more student focused on how students could address with, uh, address stress and other things in their lives. Uh, but, uh, just to close out, you know, what can an organization like CKA do to help, help parents or help the community to either create awareness or address some of these issues. Well, I already feel like you are helping. Hopefully people will listen to this podcast, right? And the fact that at the summit, we had a whole a series on mental health. So I would love, it's all about community. And I felt like even myself in my own field, you know, in North Carolina, I was pioneering it down there. And I love the fact that when I connected through CKA that I've met other Korean Americans, um, clinicians in the field of psychology. So I would say promoting it, um, addressing it like this through podcasts, even perhaps we have 
um, a consistent, like, I don't know, like, I don't know if you guys do webinars, but education is key. Remember, I'm always about teaching, um, informing parents, informing professionals, informing students um, on the latest trends. And I myself, because I have a license, I have to report to the state board. We're required to do training each year. So I want to say we have, we try to do trendy I try to do trendy uh, training. So there's always these different things happening in the field of psychology um, because society is changing, right? So I think as long as uh, CK gives us an outlet to provide that information to the Korean American community, then um, it's a start because this is something that I wanted to do. And even talking about this is huge. Well, thank you for your time, Jeannie, as well as your insights. And thank you so uh, much. I hope a lot of parents are listening out there. I hope so too. <laughs> I hope you enjoy this interview with Jeannie Chang. This is a good reminder for all of us who are parents to connect with our families, our children, and the friends around us. Our community's strength depends on people caring and supporting one another. Be intentional and mindful in your interactions with your family, friends, and your co-workers. You never know what somebody's going through unless you ask and listen. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Korean American Perspectives. Again, this is only part one of our podcast with Jeannie. We actually have a second part next week, and we'll be talking about issues related to burnout, intergenerational stress, cultural trauma, mediation, and more. If you don't want to miss out on the episode, please subscribe to our podcast and visit our website at councilka.org for more interviews, show notes, and more. Thank you again, and I hope you'll tune in next time for the Korean American Perspectives. Thank you for tuning into the Korean American Perspectives podcast. Head over to councilka.org for the show notes of this episode and see exciting upcoming programs at CKA. That's councilka.org.